Welcome, Muse Hackers. You're listening to the Hack Your Muse podcast with Kelly McClymer. Our mission is to help you discover your muse and write what you want, when you want, and how you want. Today's guest is Beth Barony. Beth is an award-winning novelist, master neuro-linguistic programming practitioner. I practiced that and it was still hard to say and certified creativity coach for writers. She specializes in helping writers experience clarity so they can write, revise, and proudly publish their novels to the delight of their readers. Her courses are packed with useful hands-on information that you can implement right away. When she's not helping writers, Beth writes magical tales of romance, mystery, and adventure that empower women and girls to be the heroes of their own lives. I like to hear that. Welcome, Beth. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's great to be here. Yeah. Okay. First of all, before we get into the real question one, exactly what is a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner? Sure. So a lot of people know it as NLP. uh, And thank you for reading. Why? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and you can see why. So it's essentially a offshoot of psychotherapy or psychology that grew out of the 70s in Santa Cruz, which is really trying to understand how do humans grow, learn, and change. And it's been, it's you know, it had a basis in linguistics, and it really has evolved. And the training that I did, which was at NLP Marin up here in Northern California, is a really a heart-centered focus on what they call change work. Um, you know, I've been, I was a coach and I had studied a lot about humans and how we function, but this really gets down to how, it, how is it that we might have bad habits or how is it that we really want something but we don't have that thing. And, helps understand it, but also how do we create change on a very basic fundamental level in a way that's very respectful of of the human, of who we are. So it's not about like, oh, you have limiting beliefs, you suck. It's really about, oh, look, your current state, what you're doing right now is really the best situation that you could have come up with. Hey, here's some way to have more resources. And so I do that very gently and very um, not necessarily surreptitiously, but I work it into actually how I teach fiction as well as how I help the writer write. So you're not confrontational about it? Not at all, no, super respectful. It sounds like we might have some similar uh, approaches to doing this, but I I don't know how I missed this area because this sounds a lot like what I like to do and the way I like to proceed. So now I'm gonna have to go do some research. All right, so now we're gonna get into the big question. How do you, what do you think of when you hear writing muse? Well, I I definitely know now sort of the historical or uh, idea of this notion of a spirit visiting us who helps us. But I tend to think of it, the muse, as the mystery with a big capital M, that we don't really know where our creativity comes from, but our job is really to show up and allow it to arrive and to channel it, to, to put it into form through our art in our case, writing fiction. Uh, but it's it's for all artists and whatever it is you're creating. So I don't really see it at personified the way, say, the Greeks did. I don't really relate to them, but I, I respect that uh, tradition in that it, it does help you understand like, oh, you're it's a relationship, having a relationship with whatever that mystery is. And I like it that it not be defined because so many things come out of it, you know, so many different ideas, so many different forms. So it's really about 
being in relationship with that mystery and then using your energy, your ability to make it happen. I really like that idea of mystery. So I'll tell you, because this is my podcast, I always get to say my thought about this. And the reason basically that I started Hack Your Muse podcast is where you're right, it's about showing up, right? If you don't show up, you can't explore the mystery. But so many times, NLP probably talks about this very gently, we know we want to write, but we do the dishes instead, or pretty much anything besides actually sitting down to write. And there's interesting reasons why that is. And so over my 40 years of writing, I have collected all these hacks to get myself to show up, essentially. And I've gathered them from all sorts of different writers, and some of them work, and some of them don't work. And I could never figure out why. And then I've been doing some work that's actually similar to what you're doing with NLP, I think. Um, it's I don't know if you're familiar with Brooke Castillo. Um, she has a something called the model, and she basically says, your thoughts create your results. So pay attention to what you're thinking, pay attention to your results, and either accept your good, if you keep thinking what you're thinking, you're going to get the same result. If you want a different result, change your thinking, which sounds so simple and is really difficult, as I'm sure you know from practicing NLP. But I'm not going to say, all right, I'll say it once. Neuro-linguistic programming. There, I said it properly. From the rest of the time, I'm just going to shortcut it as NLP. I think they, they have similar roots. So that's really interesting. But one of the things I discovered when I was writing that, when I was getting ready for the Hack Your Muse courses that I was creating, is that these two learnings kind of dovetailed. And what I realized is, for me, my muse is really my subconscious. It's all those thoughts I don't acknowledge. I don't recognize they're running in the background doing some programming on me that I'm like, wait a minute, I want to sit down and write. I said I want to sit down and write, and now I just went and opened up a game and started playing a game that is not writing. Why did I do that? And that's kind of what I want to explore. So I'm going to get into your hacks and things too, but just because you have the NLP, sure. I want to get um, your reaction to how NLP would deal with that whole, we sit down to write. Why aren't we writing? How would you approach that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I understand now the technical things that are often that are happening in the background and in the subconscious. But when I work with writers or even myself, I um, <laughs> it's complicated. Um, partly, it's a little challenging, but I know we're going to go into this. Like I've developed the habit so strongly now that I don't really pay much attention to those other urges. But what I did when I was first starting out is I would have a conversation, usually in writing, about the struggle to write. Because what's going on um, in, in people, I think, is there's that urge to write and the motivation and all the reasons why we want to write. And then there's the urge and the motivations and all the reasons why we want to go do the dishes or play the game. And part of the challenge as a writer is to understand what are those two urges. And I encourage writers to, to dialogue, ideally through writing, since that's what we're up to. Right. <laughs> and, it, and it 
it's great to give voice to all those parts of us that are like, wait, no, I can't write because um, the dishes need me. Well, why do the dishes need you? <laughs> why are they crying and distressed? You know? Do they really need you? <laughs> well, it's good to okay, give wait. honor to that trend, to that desire. Like, okay, what is it about doing the dishes that wants to that wants to come in here and and say I am more important right now than than writing? And oh, I love that question. Right? That's a great question. And usually, I mean, what I find is, well, right, right, doing the dishes is so much easier than working on my novel right now. Right? <laughs> I, I just need a win. I need a win. I, yes. right? It's a it's a quick win. It doesn't last very long, but it's a quick one. It's a quick win, and also the sensory aspect of doing the dishes. Personally, I love water, the sound of water, the the feel of water. Water is very emotional. It's very satisfying on a sensual, just basic body level. Interesting. Okay, so what about that? What if we put that into, you know, your writing? How maybe that's missing in the writing? Maybe uh, my chair is uncomfortable. Maybe. I'm, I'm setting up the writing space in a way that isn't as sensual as, as doing the dishes. Because clearly doing the dishes is winning right now, right? The urge. Yeah, exactly. What about the dishes? Like, what if writing felt like doing the dishes? Would, would, I, would I then put writing first? Would I allow the dishes to happen later? Or, or what if doing the dishes was part of the writing ritual? What if we said, oh, let's do the dishes because after that, you know what? We write. So it's, it's about developing a relationship with the thing that, seems to take precedence over writing, finding out what is it about that that you love so much and how can you connect the two? How, and I personally think that doing the dishes is a fine thing to do before I write, as long as I understand what I'm doing here. Oh, mm-hmm. definitely. If it gets yeah. you into the writing, because you can do the dishes and think about your story and get all prepped for writing, definitely. Yeah, and if it also is your way into the sensual nature of being able to connect with the sensual nature of your writing and helping you d- drop deeper into your body and get into the five senses, then what a cool pathway. So basically, we're reprogramming the pathway. We're not going, oh, dishes bad, writing good. We're like, oh, what if it were different? What if dishes was the pathway into writing? Oh, and by the way, I make my coffee too. And while my coffee is percolating, the dishes are happening. And then I'm writing and, and the kitchen is clean. And I feel great. And now I move into my writing space. And ah, uh, right. So it has a whole body experience where everything is included right. and is left out, leaving you feel like something was missing. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And you, oh, you brought up, some, I asked you that question. Yeah. You brought up some two key components of NLP, which is Everything is included and nothing is left out. (laughs) Seriously, that's a big part of our struggles in life is we're often trying to make up some ingredient by doing those other activities. And and for some reason, they're not in our writing space. Well, what if if we could put them in there? Yeah, exactly. And writing would become the best feeling activity of the day. We're like, oh my God, I feel so great when I write because we've now loaded it with all these yummy things that allow this to be the highlight of the day. Because humans, and this is what I learned at NLP too, is that humans always, 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 100% without exception, choose the thing that feels the best. Yes, our feelings do tend to lead us. Without exception. So the notion that thoughts lead to behavior, absolutely. But before thoughts is usually things that come to create what we call feelings, um, which are a combination of what we're looking at or seeing in our or seeing inside of ourselves, what we're thinking, and then what we're feeling, which then go to create our thoughts. So it, it actually is kind of preceding this notion of thought. What's before that? And even that is an interpretation about three steps removed of our actual experience. So 
those are the kinds of things I studied and that's how it yeah. helps me. And I'll let you duke that out with Brooke because right now I'm finding her thoughts create your results amazing because I'm an overthinker, a chronic overthinker and actually starting to recognize, you know, that I can just pick a thought and really start to try and believe it and do the work necessary to believe it and act in belief is very useful. But the other part of that, because she has four things to that model. And the first one is the thoughts and the second one's definitely feelings. The third one is action. And the fourth one is result. Um, and I sort of argue with her too about it just being fault, just being thoughts, because it's like, it feels so holistic to me. But one of the things that I discovered doing this is I really don't privilege my feelings at all. I tend to think they're just annoying things that get in the way. <laughs> Which is a very Western uh, Western way of thinking, a very modern, right? It comes out of the whole enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. it's not for Yeah, only the facts. And emotions are not facts, but I'm learning that they are. <laughs> Yes. No, this NLP is really interesting. I'm going to have to study it more. All right, so now we're going to get back to your experience as a writer. Do you remember the first time you decided you were going to be a writer and you sat down and actually wrote something? Well, yes, I was a kid, and it was quite easy because I was a kid, and uh, the hard part was figuring out how to get it published because that was what I also wanted. That I definitely... Oh, how old were you? I was like eight. Okay, so how did you know about publishing when you were eight? I mean, how did that look yeah. to you when you were eight? <laughs> right, well, uh, my great-grandmother was a writer. Um, and can I name drop her just because? Oh, certainly, I of know course. Who she was. Um, her name was Meridel Lesseur, and she was a writer who came out of the workers' movement in the 30s, and she was a communist, and she was... Oh, my gosh. Uh, Anything she has still out there? Uh, yeah, her stuff was rediscovered in the 70s by the feminist movement. So the biggest name book is probably called The Girl, nice. uh, which is written. In I'll a, put that in the show notes. We'll put that in the show notes. I also have a resource for you for NLP or a few resources. So I can. Oh, thank you. Yes, definitely for the show notes. So I was aware of publishing because we had her books on the shelf and she had a, a handful of books for kids that were always sent to us, you know, like birthday gifts and Christmas gifts and such. And uh, so I understood that. And I actually, the first story I remember writing, I remember binding it with needle and thread. So I was very much about the finished product from a young age. That's uh, very old school, you know. The the uh, Brontes used to do that when they were children. Wow, that is so cool. Unfortunately, I don't have a copy of that book. I have a copy of a little anthology I made with my three younger siblings for my dad, which he gave to me, which is stapled. So now when you were eight, once you had bound it together, then you considered it published, right? You it didn't was, have it accepted by an editor. or right. I wanted it to be published by a real publisher. I knew, you knew that, that it was not real publishing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I would say that as a kid, it wasn't taken, it wasn't taken seriously, my writing. Um, arts and crafts were very much part of the household. My mom had plenty of materials for that and on we had after do day after school daycare where she did art projects with us kids, but writing ironically was the one thing I wasn't supported in. Maybe because you know, oh, that's great grandma, you know, who was still alive. Oh, interesting. I don't. 
Because you had an example in the family of someone who was successful and you still were, I mean, because normally I can understand people are like, no one makes money writing. <laughs> Why would well, you do that? <laughs> right. That was part of it. And part of it, I think, was like, well, she's the, she's the important one. And I don't know. I, I have no idea. I think it was completely unconscious. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it was. I mean, yeah. parents don't, they don't mean to give us half the messages they give us. Sure. I can say that my children, I did not mean to give them half the messages they got either. I can right, say. right. But then, right. you know, I want to fast forward because I actually really had the strong desire to be a novelist um, when I was 18. Okay, so did you, between eight and 18, did you kind yeah. of put it aside or was it always there? It was always there. I was dabbling with poems. I remember when I was 11 in sixth grade, it was limericks. They were, they were really fun to write. I, I loved fun rhyming poetry, silly, fun. I would memorize fun, silly poems and my brother and I would recite them. Silly, silly things like they faced back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other, you know, really <laughs> poetry. That was like a fun thing to do. Uh, and then in middle school, really when I was 13, our teacher assigned us all kinds of amazing assignments that involved lots and lots of writing. And that's when I started dabbling in fiction in a way. Yeah, that's when I actually did fiction. And I really got it. I'm like, I can do this. You know, it was sort of a growing up moment for me. And I was very happy. And, I, you know, writing had been something I was playing in before. Um, but it was at, I think, age 13, I started writing a journal regularly. I wrote these pieces of fiction for the class. And I was just in awe that I could do it. And I loved it. Just loved it. So then 18 came and you decided you were going to go for a novel. Right. Well, of course, between 13 and 18, academics intervened and all my creative energy went into writing papers. And I still kept a journal. <laughs> but I know if you look back, it's like, I don't think I, uh, storytelling was interrupted by all the requirements of school. And please jump aside. We do aside. get more serious. That's true. Yeah. No if more I had, time for fun. <laughs> I know. If the assignments had been fun, I would have done them. So I was kind of driven by academics. And then I go to college. I'm 18. Actually, maybe I'm 19, really. And I just remember feeling, oh, I wish I could write fiction, but I have no idea where to begin. I was really, you know, I was young. So, but I did know, because I learned from my mom, who had learned from her grandma, my great-grandma, the writer, that um, writers write. I knew that. I knew that from a young age, writers write. Yeah. So all I did was write in my journal. I was like, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to write story, but I do know how to write in my journal. And I would do disciplined writing. I would get to work a little early at a library job on campus. And I would do basically a form of timed writing, like 10, 20 minutes. And I would just write things like, I don't know what to say. I want to <laughs> and angry things. And oh, things. I'm picturing it slowly comes into a story, but that would not come into a story. <laughs> right. And I was just stream of consciousness. Yeah. Um, sorry, I, I missed what you said. When did it transition into real storytelling? Well, it took some time because in my mid-20s, I started learning the tools of journalism in this internship I had. And um, to really show how North, Northern California I am, I went and studied at the Berkeley Psychic Institute in my mid-20s. And I got an internship at their newspaper, the Berkeley Psychic Reader, and basically learned on the job under someone who was my age, but had done a journalism degree. And yeah, she that's was, really deadlines, right? You have yeah. to turn it in when it's, yeah. That's right. Deadlines, word counts. And so I just started on the journalism side with book reviews and interviews. 
which I was perfectly happy with. And it helped me so much. It helped me learn to produce. And uh, it was hard. It was very hard. I would say. And, and I had a subscription to the Writer's Digest magazine in my mid-20s. I'm like, okay, I was studying. I wanted to be a novelist. Not, I was you studying. didn't go to the library. You actually had a subscription. You were serious. <laughs> I was serious. I was serious. And I... I did start writing ideas down and I read a book that was so influential for me in handling the inner editor, which is, um, I believe it's called writing on both sides of the brain. Yes. I've read that. That's a great one. I'll put that in the show notes too. Such a good book, such a good book. It really, and then I, that's where I learned this dialoguing, writing the dialogue between you and your editor and asking, what is it your editor wants? And really it was the very first time I ever had a dialogue with that part of me that was so judgmental. Of everything I put down. That's what I call the muse because my muse is extremely judgmental. <laughs> I don't think the editor is a muse. I think the editor is an editor. Uh, I think I think the muse okay. is everything. But uh, then my muse is Baba Yaga. So okay. she's really nice to you if you do what she wants, but she is not nice to you when you don't. <laughs> ah, I love that image. She's a powerful creature. Um, yeah, so, and then... I was like 29 years old and I was single and I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And a friend of mine, the same woman who had trained me in journalism, she was like, oh yeah, I applied to a master's program and such and such. And I was like, why don't I apply for journalism? Because by then I had written a good 50 to 100 articles for the newspaper. And I'm like, oh, I got some chops. I get it. I'm, <laughs> I'm a feature writer. I'm not a hard journalism writer. I did take one journalism class at, at UC Berkeley and I learned I'm not a hard journalism writer. I'm not good at the in-your-face in kind of journalism. Um, but I got rejected from journalism school. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm turning 30 pretty soon. And I'm like, oh, why did I get rejected? This is the first major rejection of my like adult life. Well, it was probably something silly, you know, that, I mean, well, actually, that's the way it works. It actually, I, I finally, after a few months of getting over the shock, I finally reread the essay I sent in. And it is in black and white in that essay where I explained, I really want to do journalism so I can get close to people so that I can write fiction. Oh my goodness. And you hadn't seen that before. I outed oh. myself and I saw that and I'm like, no wonder they rejected me. And am I going to, you know, I'm turning 30 in a month or two. Am I going to put fiction aside or am I going to do it? Because clearly my subconscious is telling me <laughs> how yes. important this is. You wrote that letter more to yourself than to them. <laughs> I did. I did. And so I realized, you know, yeah, I'm going to go after this fiction thing. Where do I begin? <laughs> you know, and so then I joined a little group somewhere along Telegraph Avenue here in Berkeley. Berkeley's next door to me. Um, and, and just I knew that if I, I knew my psychology, I knew I learned well in groups, I had to get to a group. I had to sit in person where people are talking about fiction and doing fiction. And that's the only way I would start. So that's what I did. And I was just a few months shy of turning 30. And that's how I started my first novel. And I say that I never think about it that way, but I, my do that my best writing, my most productive writing when I'm in sort of a, a group, even an online group where I'm reporting on what I'm doing, celebrating things, talking over problems. I hadn't thought about that. So yeah, I, yeah, it is a good thing. And I, I did that group one or two times. I started the story and then I took myself to a cafe across the street from where I lived in, in Oakland at the time. And I said, okay, I'm going to write this first scene. 
And I sat there for about an hour. I think I barely got halfway through the scene. And I'm like, oh my God. Let me, let me ask you a question though. Okay, so we're right here and you're starting to write this first scene. How vivid is it in your mind what you want to write? Or is it misty? Emotionally, it's vivid. Because I, I, I just latched on to arbitrary time and place. And it just kind of blossomed in my head. It was like a painting. So I was describing that, describing what I saw. Because everyone's different. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I could feel it. I was feeling her. I was writing from this woman's perspective, and I felt how she. I felt like I was feeling the world through her perceptions, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and it was hard, very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized how hard it was when an hour had gone by, and I'd only written maybe half a scene. I was like, it was kind of like I sat back in my chair, and I'm like, okay, Beth, this is what it's like. It's long. It's hard. It's slow. It's challenging, you know, are you still committed? And I was like, yes, I am committed to this no matter what it takes. Cause I, I wanted it. I'd wanted it for a very long time. Well, and you told yourself in that letter, so you really did have to step up and, and do it. So that's really interesting because you had that experience of doing the journalism where I, I'm, journalism is not easy, but it does have deadlines and it's not as emotionally fraught as writing a story and then you get to the novel and it's like, oh, you got to start all over again, almost, in being able to get that out. Oh, that is a great story. I love that. All right. Now we're going to go to, I'm sure that even with NLP, you avoid writing sometimes, even when you don't want to. So what's your number one go-to hack when you're like, I need to get this writing done? <laughs> But yes. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's, I don't know. Maybe you already told us it's washing dishes and getting into No, actually, I have a very specific hack. And um, there's it, kind of had two parts to it. One is timed writing. The clear and simple answer is timed writing. I love timed writing. I set my timer for 20 minutes. I've decided through t- experimentation that 20 minutes is the magic number. It's not too long. So you're like, oh, my God, it's an hour. Yeah. <laughs> it's not too short. So you can kind of cheat. Oh, I did a little bit. But it's okay. enough to kind of get in there, break the crust of the resistance, as Stephen Pressfield says. Oh, yes, that's good. Get into it because I'm committed and I've set the timer and I also track my time, 20 minutes. Okay. And then, then there's a self-talk piece. There's like, okay, Beth, you know this is hard. It's hard for a reason. And I always, I've learned it's hard because of the work. It's hard because of the story staring back at me, requiring my attention having, I need to make some hard decisions or I need to go to a difficult emotional place. Something about the work itself is hard. It's, it's actually not about me having a bad day. It's, it's really, it's really about the work. And, and so I know that and I'm like, okay, it's about the work. Let's just take 20 minutes and we're just going to look at it. We're just going to be with it. Just going to address it. And you're just going to do what you can because 20 minutes, you know, 20 minutes. So that is my hack. And I use it a lot. And I've got 16 books under my belt. I, I, I like that. Yeah. I use it a lot. And it's kind of built into the system of I track my time using this cool tool that I use the free version of Toggle. Toggle, T-O-G-G-L? Yes. I love it. I use it for all aspects of my business and all aspects of my fiction um, business, you know, the coaching business and the writing business. Check it out. <laughs> and it just, it's like, 
it turns green when you're, you know, you click a button and it turns green, you're working on that project and you're like, okay, and it's counting and you're working and it's right there. You know, you can't, you can't, you can go and do something. It's like a promise to yourself. So that's what timed writing is for me. And I love it. And I use it when I teach and it's just, a, you know, I, I've been using it for a very long time um, in, in my work for others, you know, my writing work and for myself. And, and then I've had the added experience of doing a few sprint triathlons, which are like mini triathlons. Where yeah, I've seen those. Yeah, I've learned the physical experience of how long a minute is when you're like running or biking or swimming. And you're like, there is a lot that can happen, say, even in one minute. So I, I try and remind people and myself, it's like work can happen in a short period of time. It's amazing. The physical body that is one of the myths we tell ourselves sometimes is that we need, and, and I know I do this to myself all the time, I need a couple of hours and nobody to bother me. But really, what I need to be is in my own head and having accepted the story and accepted that it's going to be hard work worth doing. So, yeah, I like that idea of just being free to see what could happen in a minute. Mm-hmm. What's the shortest sprint that you do? Probably, um, like at some of the NaNoWriMo write-ins, we've done like five-minute sprints or something. Um, those are always very interesting. A lot can happen in a five-minute yes. sprint. That I've, yes. been, I've been experimenting with that for the last year because I, I made a challenge for myself to write every day, which is not my normal practice. And it's interesting how much and how deep you can go in five minutes. Yeah, and I was really inspired by those short sprints by watching my husband, who is a singer-songwriter, but also a novelist like me, and he can come up with the most interesting or funny or silly things in the shortest period of time. I've watched him do this, like, we've been together, what, almost 21 years, and I'm just, like, blown away. So watching him do that, I'm like, oh, it's really not as hard as I thought. <laughs> and it's, it's very helpful to have that example. Uh, Okay. Well, thank you so much, Beth. This has been really good. And uh, we have so many things to put in the show notes for people. All right. Let people know exactly where they can find you online, because I know they're going to be looking for you. Fabulous. And and thanks so much, Kelly. I feel like we could go easily another hour on this topic. It's so much fun. We could go the whole day, I guarantee. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And then we'll want to go and do some writing. Uh, Yeah. Um, so yes, you can find me online, um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Beth at Beth Barani. Um, sometimes there's a underscore, I think Twitter it's at Beth B-A-R-A-N-Y. B-A-R-A-N-Y. Um, I do have a Beth and really if you want to access my resources, the best place to go to is writers fun zone blog. You could write writers fun zone and then blog is a separate word. Boom, you're going to jump in there. Lots of articles by lots of great guest writers, as well as access. If you sign up for the blog, you get some free resources. You get on my list and uh, all the other things, my books, my classes, you know, all that. Writer's Fun Zone. That sounds like someplace to visit. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, that's all for this episode, Muse Hackers. Stay tuned for more Muse Hacking Wisdom next week. Okay, Muse Hackers, it's commercial time. 
If you love this podcast and want to support it with real dollars and cents, I have the perfect course for you on Teachable. Meet Your Muse is a mini course that will show you how to unleash the power of your muse while at the same time reining in some of her most creativity crushing bad habits. If you spend more time thinking about writing than actually writing, Meet Your Muse can help you turn that around. Once you've met your muse, you will have the keys to creating the most productive writing sessions ever, even if you only have 10 minutes a day to write. Remember, one page a day, 250 words, equals 364 pages, 90,000 words. That could be two short books or one good-sized book, or five or six or more short stories, articles, or blog posts. Isn't that worth $20 and two hours or less of your time? Best part, you will be supporting this podcast to continue seeking out the best news hacking writers around and sharing that wisdom with you for free. To sign up for Meet Your Muse, go to hack-your-muse.teachable.com. That's hack-your-muse.teachable.com. Thanks. See you next week.